Good morning. Maybe for those of us who are easily distracted and there are 500 million things vying for your attention this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask Him to help us center our minds attention and our hearts affection on the Lord, okay? Let's do it. Father, um, I confess to you this morning that it is so easy to be somewhere else in my mind. I confess to you that uh, there are many things that vie for attention. And, uh, and Lord, I just ask you now to help me um, to make you the object of my affection and my attention, to take your yoke upon me and learn from you. For you're gentle and lowly in heart, and your yoke is easy and your burden is light. So, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, help me to do that. Lord, I pray for all of us, Lord, this morning, that that would be our experience. Lord Jesus, bring us to take your yoke upon us and learn from you. Holy Spirit, rule. We pray against the effects of the evil one. We pray against the power of the evil one. For you are more powerful. And we pray that you would rule. Have your way. Open our hearts and minds. We pray you'd crush opposition to your word. We pray you'd crush any lack of unity or anything that would set itself up against the knowledge of Jesus Christ this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're finishing up 1 Timothy this morning, and uh, it has been quite a journey. Uh, Next week, we're going to look at an introduction to the book of Ephesians, and we're going to finish 2 Timothy and Titus sometime in the next 10 years. And so when we get there, we get there. Remember I've told you before, the goal is not to get done. The goal is to be right. And so that's where we're going to go. And so uh, we've been looking at Paul's letter to Timothy and the church at Ephesus, of which Timothy is one of the shepherds. And so it makes sense that uh, we should take a look at Paul's instruction to this church and some of the implications surrounding it. This is a church planted This is a church sent out, and uh, we're going to learn some cool things about the church at Ephesus and some cool things about the implications of the church at Ephesus on us as we look to make way for what God is doing in our town and in our midst and and get His instruction on those things. Today in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to 21, uh, we are finishing up, and, and if you titled this, if you're looking at the blog I put up in the title... This title, Take Hold of That, Which is Truly Life. A fitting way for Paul to end his instruction to Timothy is that he and the church at Ephesus would take hold of that which is truly life. Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 verse 7, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Believers at Ephesus were tempted to walk away from the gospel in favor of the new theological, philosophical, or pragmatic flavor of the day. And what was at stake for them was Revelation 2-7, the paradise of God, the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it was being challenged with the Turkish delight of bad teaching. And all bad teaching goes down smooth. It tastes good, but its end is bitterness and hurt and wanting more. They had begun to wander into speculations and myths and the delusions of the evil one. Some had made shipwreck of their faith by believing that godliness was how they got gain, rather than believing that the gain is God himself. Some had begun to believe the teachings of demons through the demons' prophets disguised as shepherds. Some of them were forbidding marriage. Some were forbidding certain foods, myths, speculations leading to shipwreck. So with one final push, Paul commands Timothy to take hold of real life, not some fake imitation That would break down once they got home from the store. But to take hold of what was truly life. Listen to Paul's final 
instruction here. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and 21. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Paul's first command and his final instruction is buried at the end of this initial section in verse 19. Paul states it at the front end in the negative at the start of verse 17. When he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not. So he states this charge in the negative on the front end of verse 17. But he states it in the positive in verse 19. When he says that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, in order to take hold of life, the positive, there are some things they must not do. So he starts on the front end with the negative. These are the things not to do if you want life. But if you want life, Timothy, you have to avoid certain things. So let's state it in the positive in order for the command to take its effect in our ears. I'm afraid that if we don't set this instruction in the setting properly, some of us may not hear. So let's begin. Verse 17 to 19. Take hold of true life. That's the instruction. Take hold of true life. You see, what's at stake here is exactly that. True life. This true life is contrasted with life that is not true. Fake. A mirage. A trap. If there's true life, then there's life that appears to be true, but in fact it is not true. So the positive admonition is, Timothy, take Hold of true life. Don't take hold of the mirage. Don't take hold of the trap. The trap is that by gaining something other than Jesus, there's actually gain in it. That there's something else. There's something beyond Jesus. This was the lie of the garden. Listen, Satan just recycles lies. There are no new lies. They just have different t-shirts on them. That's all. It's the same lie. And if you listen carefully, you can hear it whispered in your ears daily. There is something else to be had. This lie is the lie in the garden. God's holding out on you. There must be more. Take what He's forbidden and get it. Get what you deserve. Because obviously He is holding out on you. This rebellion caused the breaking of everything. And it will continue to break everything. We are broken, so we crave the gifts, not the giver. Thinking that we're going to find what we want in the gift. But as always, we discover that the gaining of stuff is empty and it soon fades into the ache of wanting, still being present and accounted for. And you all know what that feels like. This is because that ache is only satisfied in being reconciled back to Father when we have declared war on Him in the garden. And so therefore that ache only gets fixed by being reconciled to the Father. Even as Christians, we still wrestle with this. Jesus satisfies us and our soul is transformed but in our flesh we still have the aches and the disease of the fall and we wage a Romans 7 battle of wanting to do right but being so impossible and desiring to do evil and it being so easy. You see this 
is a temptation not only for those who have abundance. Hear this carefully. This is a temptation not only for those who have abundance, but for those who don't and perceive that abundance is the key to success or happiness. This is why I wanted to stop, start with the positive affirmation and admonition at the end of verse 19. Because if we just started with, tell the rich, then I think some of us in this room will go, that's not for me. And so we shut it down and we don't listen. You see, the temptation here is not only for those who have abundance, but for those who don't and perceive that abundance is the key to happiness or success. So the admonition is, go for real life. Go for real life. Not the mirage. See, whether they had riches or had their future hope pinned on gaining them, such as possibly one of the slaves in the church, thinking that one day I can be like my master. So regardless whether they had riches or had their future hope pinned on gaining them, Paul's instruction on how to gain true life is utterly vital. So Paul says, verse 17, for those with abundance, he says, do not be haughty. There's no life in haughtiness. Do not be haughty. There's no life in being haughty. The belief that having abundance is a sign of God's grace is a lie. I'm going to say that again. Because the temptation for them would be that I have abundance, therefore God has blessed me more than you. Which is a haughty statement. It is a statement higher than. I've been given much, you've been given less. God's blessed me more. Poor you. The belief that having abundance is a sign of God's grace is a lie. You see, that works in a Western economic situation of prosperity. But what about the depressed third world country where a Christian suffers? This is why you can get on television and sell a lot of books about Friday being your best day. It works well where there's an economic system of prosperity. But when there isn't one, what about the Christian who does 15 years hard labor for preaching the gospel? Are they less blessed? If you can't preach it globally, it's a lie. We've learned in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy how to recognize the lies of demons who come through prophets. Watch out. The idea that one is exalted spiritually and blessed because they have an abundance is a lie. At Ephesus, that seemed to be part of the demonic teaching that some had believed. That godliness is a way to get gain. If I just obey Jesus, God's going to give me more. We studied that already. But Paul tells them, don't be haughty. That's what Paul is calling haughty. That's a high and false spiritual view. This is why it's to those who already have and to those who don't and think if they get it, they will be better. Paul tells them, don't go there. The fact that Paul has to instruct this indicates that these folks have believed that lie. They see themselves as higher so they say, I'm so blessed. Those who have nothing and suffer injustice, hear this carefully, are just as blessed as the one with much. The problem is many of us are more American than we are Christian. We're more economic capitalists than we are kingdom of God. And some people will probably never come back because I just said that. Check out Joseph in Genesis chapters 32 through 50. It's a significant portion of the book of Genesis, isn't it? Was Joseph less blessed than his brothers? If you don't know the story of Joseph, go read it. No, he wasn't. 
Joseph was the chosen instrument by which his family would be saved. And what a glorious job Colston did last week for us on that passage in the Lord's Supper. Remember, blessing biblically is family inclusion with all the benefits of being in the family, including being an instrument by which God chooses to save others, even if being that instrument means suffering. Such as Joseph. So if we find ourselves with much. And by the way, each of us in this room globally are rich. Nobody in this room is not rich. My children have bank accounts with money in them. By global standards, my children are rich. So think. Not that we escape this instruction. If we find ourselves with much, and each of us are rich by global standards, don't think it's a sign of blessing above the brother or sister who's been chosen to struggle for God's good purposes. So don't be haughty. Don't think that gaining things is a sign of God's blessing. It's a lie. Don't be haughty. What's the admonition? There's no life in haughtiness. There's no life in thinking that I have much, so God's blessed me. And that poor fool who's struggling, hmm, that's a lie. It's haughty. And Paul tells Timothy, take hold of real life. Don't, don't take hold of that. It's a mirage. Number two, do not, do not, Set hope on the uncertainty of riches, Paul says here. Why? Because there's no life in riches. I mean, does he say that? As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Do not set hope on the uncertainty of riches. There's no life in riches. Proverbs 23, 4 to 5. Listen to it. You believe? Okay. I'm going to ask you to, to physically, bodily participate for a moment. You're not going to have to stand up, and we're not going to do group works. I hate group work. Group work's like horrible. Because you always got one guy that does all the work. That was usually me. And then the slackers outside the group who did nothing, but they get the same grade you got. Uh-uh. You rise and fall on your own merits, big boy. So we're not doing group work. Just individual right here in the seat. Do you believe the Bible tells the truth in all things and never misleads? If you believe that, raise your hand. Okay, if you don't raise your hand, you probably raised it out of peer pressure because you're not sure. So that's okay. We believe that here. It's called the doctrine of inerrancy. The Bible doesn't affirm anything contrary to fact. So it affirms true things. Okay? You ready? Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Y'all read that one recently? Now those are the passages we avoid. I don't want to read that today in my quiet time. Jesus may speak to me and require me to do something different. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Wow. Have enough discernment to stop going after fake life. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. It's like my kids trying to chase a bird in the yard. They're pretty stealthy and can get fairly close, but the bird is more perceptive than they are. So when it perceives they are near, it takes off. And it takes them a while. They get old enough and figure out, I can't do that. I will use a gun. And I, oh, I got it, right? This is wealth. This is riches. Don't toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on, it's gone. It sprouts wings and flies like an eagle toward heaven. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. So don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. There's no life there. Stuff is uncertain. It's not certain. Jesus is certain. His kingdom is certain. It is a foregone conclusion. Set your mind and heart on Christ and His kingdom, not on attaining stuff. 
Note something here that's pretty important. Paul does not tell the wealthy to get rid of their wealth. So don't take it where he doesn't take it. Paul does not tell them to get rid. Paul tells them to not put their hope in it. He doesn't say get rid of it. He says just don't put your hope in it. Why? Because they're as temporary as a bird staying in one place. Our problem is that we have a tendency to view time as being so long. And we think that because we're in the middle of it, it's long and it takes a long time. And we look at our lives as going, gosh, this week is passing so slowly. And my life is this long period of time. I've got all this time. But what we fail to realize is time, and I'm going to blow your mind here for a second, so I'm sorry, I can't help it. God dwells in eternity. Time is a creation of God's. And we dwell in it as temporary creatures inside time. And so we have this concept that somehow it's just going to be this way because it's my experience. It's what I've known. I know economic prosperity. We, we, we don't know depression. None of us lived through the Great Depression. My parents did. So they understood the frailty of riches. We have this idea that because we dwell in time and all we've ever known in our existence has been much, that it's just going to be that way. Hint for you. Historically, globally, it never is. This is why you need to take history class and pay attention. Does that make sense? History's God's story. And, and economically, historically, things don't always stay the same. God knows this. Why? It's why he said, don't set your hope on it. Set it on Jesus. It's uncertain. Riches are temporary. So he says, there's no life there, so don't set your hope on them. Be discerning enough to desist. Number three. He says here, do set your hope on God. Who provides us with everything to enjoy. There is life in Father, Son, and Spirit. In order to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Setting hope on God stores up the good foundation of treasure in the kingdom of heaven, and this is truly life. God richly graces for the purpose of us enjoying something. He says here that God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, meaning whatever He has given to us, he has given it to us to enjoy. Now there's, there's something here that's huge. If that enjoyment aborts in this life, it's worthless. If that enjoyment stops in this life, it's worthless. So my question here is, what is God providing for us to enjoy. Is it just simply a few temporary necessities or play pretties that just end and go away and that's it? And it's like, well, that kind of was not really all that worth it. Is that what He provides us with to enjoy? No. What I would say to you is what God provides us with in this life, whatever He sees fit to entrust to us, whether it's one talent, two or ten, He does it with an eye toward the coming kingdom and the treasure we inherit for how we faithfully manage what He gives us in this life. The problem with us in the fall is we have a tendency to think that what He has given us to steward in this life is it. When in fact, what He has given us in this life is His gracious giving to us at His determining to manage and at the end of days will reward us with treasure in the kingdom based on our stewardship of what He gave us here. Matthew 19, 16-22. Flip over there with me. Pretty important. He provides us with stuff to enjoy. But what I want you to see here in Jesus' teaching is what He gives us to enjoy doesn't abort in this life. It's 
stuff to manage, regardless of how he sovereignly handed it out, for the purpose of gracing us in the kingdom with treasure. Listen to Matthew 19, 16 to 22. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I've kept, what do I still lack? It's really hard not to preach this passage this morning. I'm just going to have to get to the point because it's loaded. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. How much did Jesus value stuff here and now? Not very much. So did he just, does he give it to us to enjoy only now? If he didn't value it now, then it must not be, the joy must not be found in now. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, sell it all, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Kingdom principles for you. What you do with what God sovereignly gives to you here, has effect on what you inherit in the coming kingdom. That's where the joy is. That's where the joy comes full circle. Is that I am willing to drop all of that now to have Christ, because with Christ I have everything. And in the coming age, full joy in inheriting the kingdom and everything He decides to give me in the kingdom to manage forever. So I will gladly lay this aside now, To get it all then. That's the joy we are to live for. That's where the joy is found. This is why believers who get this are happy with nothing. Because they realize there's coming a day where I will gain life and the kingdom and all the riches of the kingdom as an heir of Christ. That's where the joy is. So he provides us with things to enjoy and the joy is a mere shadow of the full joy to come in the kingdom. This is going to take a while for our heads and hearts to get around. Let me say it to you another way. It is no sin to live for future joy. It is no sin to live for enjoyment on the other side of the casket. It is not wrong to lay up treasure in heaven. It is not wrong to put all of your eggs in the basket of the kingdom. Because there is where the joy is found. That's where it will come full circle. And so do set your hope on God who provides us with everything to enjoy. I would argue Paul's eye for enjoyment here is in the kingdom, not simply in this age. You know why I say that? Because Paul had little to enjoy in this life. Except jails and beatings. And I don't think he was a masochist. I think Paul had in mind treasure in heaven. He's provided me with treasure in heaven to enjoy. I enjoy it now with an eye toward that day. I have nothing now, but the day is coming. I will inherit the earth. It's mine as a member of the kingdom. So therefore I can live with nothing today and He's given me everything to enjoy. This this is the distinction between a Christian following Jesus and one following an economic system of prosperity. This is why a Christian can have nothing and be happy in Christ because their joy is laid up there. It's like I'm already happy. This is totally like a cheesy illustration, so pardon it. I'm already fired up. Monday morning is not going to be a problem. You want to know why? It's not a spiritual reason, so don't think I'm being real spiritual. It's because i got Falcons tickets next Saturday night. Preseason game number three, and starters play into the third quarter in preseason game number three. And because they're preseason tickets, I got them at a cheaper rate. I'm fired up. 
with the prospect of Saturday night, the boys have a, a scrimmage at North Cobb Christian Academy Saturday morning, so Saturday's going to be full of football. And for the joy of Saturday, I will endure Monday morning. So, it'll be alright. It's going to be okay. Because Saturday's coming. And so those of you who worship football with me, you know what it's like. So in a very cheesy way, this illustration shows us we can endure what He gives us here with the eye to the joy of inheriting the kingdom. Matthew six nineteen to 21, Jesus says the same thing. We cannot serve God in money, so therefore we store up treasure in heaven. So I say to us, go after real life. Go after real life. Don't go after the mirage. Don't go after the Turkish delight. It ends in death. It will pillage your soul, and you'll be left holding an empty bag. Verse 20 to 21, Paul says, guard the deposit. Guard the deposit. By the way, this is how Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, chose to end the letter. You know, kind of like you end it on a high note, or you end it on the like most important thing to say. This is how the Spirit of God determined to end this letter to us and to them. So therefore, it must be of vital importance. Go after real life, church. Don't go after the mirage. Guard the deposit, verse 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Guard the entrusted gospel. Paul calls it the deposit. The image that Jesus has already given in the gospels of giving talent. I've deposited something with you, servant. Go and put it to work. And when I return, I'll call you to give an account for what I've given to you. Two, five, and ten. We've been deposited the gospel. We've been entrusted with the message, the comprehensive framework of God's work in history called the gospel. And he tells Timothy, guard it. Guard it. Guard the gospel. He tells him how to do it. Guard the gospel by avoiding the babble and contradictions of knowledge. He doesn't guard the gospel by burying it in the dirt. As a matter of fact, this is the church at Ephesus, not at Jerusalem. Meaning, the gospel has been plentifully and liberally spread through the known world. When he says guard the gospel, he doesn't mean keep it inside Jerusalem. No, no, no. It is to be liberally spread to all nations, all the families of the earth. When he says guard this gospel, he means its content, not its scope. He says guard the gospel by avoiding the babble and contradictions of knowledge. Technology has made available much preaching and teaching. This has given rise to the Christian superstar thing where the good talker gets an interweb following and ends up propagating lies because they tickle ears with the fare of a fallen culture disguised with a little coating of Jesus to sneak it past the fledgling flame of discernment. This has to be avoided. Jesus didn't make superstars. Remember James and John? They wanted to be superstars. We want to sit at your right hand and your left hand. We want the podcast. We want the book deal. Jesus said, if you're going to be great in my kingdom, you've got to be a foot washer. This has to be avoided. Often the failure is that one believes they've met God's spiritual quota for the week by listening to or watching their favorite preacher boy, and they fail to engage in the local fellowship. This is a small but a deadly purchase of anti-gospel babble. Thinking they've gained knowledge and they're good for the week when in fact the gospel call is not to intake more data. 
The purpose of preaching isn't just so you learn more. That is part of it. It's a byproduct. This is the failure of thinking technology can get the job done. Teaching and preaching isn't merely for the intake of data. It is an opportunity for fellowship to grow by people being with one another as Father, Son, and Spirit are together and Holy Spirit ministering and teaching in the room, gifting and equipping to minister to one another for the glory of the King and for their joy and enjoyment. You can't get that on the interweb. And the idea that somehow I've filled my spiritual quota for the week and my head's full of information and we think we've met the goal is a lie. It's babble. Because the goal isn't just to hear a message and walk away going, man, that was good. It is to hear a message and go, wow, the Lord spoke. You know, the Lord's speaking to me and He wants me to serve you. And you can't serve people when you are not with people. So you think we've gained knowledge and we're good for the week when in fact the gospel calls to not intake more data but go and fellowship with the family of God learning together and being a servant of all by setting up chairs, making their coffee, opening doors, showing new people where to go. Romans 12, 1-2 as your spiritual service of worship. And when we get that, then we learn. We learn some important things. We learn here in this passage that we're to avoid those kind of things. And there are 500 places we could go with that. But we learn that abandoning the gospel results in swerving from the faith. He said, verse 21, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. You get the picture. You drive. You know what it is, swerve, to miss something. The picture is that we have swerved from the path of the gospel. The faith is more than a set of facts we assimilate into our heads. This is what we've got to figure out as modern Western Christians. The faith is more than information we assimilate in our brains and go, yeah, I get it. The faith is the total system of truth that then affects our actions. If we take in data and it doesn't change our actions... We didn't believe it. I would argue we never heard it. We can't be people with great theological degrees who do nothing and say we believe the faith or we're on track. If it keeps us from being salt and light in the kingdom, if it keeps us from fellowship, it's a lie. If it keeps us from reading scripture, it's a lie. If it keeps us from gifting for other people, it's a lie. So Paul tells Timothy here, guard the deposit. Hey church, I say to you, guard the glorious deposit of the gospel. It's bigger than facts. It's the sum total of truth, Genesis to Revelation, that has to be lived out. Proclaimed and lived out. And what's the last instruction in 1 Timothy? Verse 21b, Paul says, grace be with you. This is my favorite part of the letter. Grace be with you. Some of Paul's favorite phraseology. I encourage you at some point study the prayers of Paul and the introductions to his letters. We read over the introductions to get to our favorite memory verse. But the Spirit inspired the introductions too. Finally, Timothy and the church in Ephesus, they are to receive the grace of God. They're to receive the grace of God. God's grace is the innumerable gifts that are poured out on us that's been purchased by the suffering of Christ. That's a loaded statement, and I hope you heard it. God's grace, I think my subject verb agreement is off here. Just throw me for a loop. God's grace is 
the innumerable gifts. And I think that's proper, but it's not good theology. God's graces are all these innumerable gifts that are poured out on us, that are purchased by the suffering of Christ. If you've been given little and joy in God, Jesus suffered to give you that gift. And it's not less than. If you've been given more than someone else, Jesus suffered to give you that. And to entrust to you that gift. Common grace is... The innumerable blessings given by God to all of mankind that are not part of salvation. God being good, graces even the unbelieving with sunshine and rain to make crops grow so they can eat and drink. This is God's common goodness to all image bearers. However, the grace received by those who believe the gospel is a special kind of grace that only a child of God can receive. And Paul says, grace be with you. I love students. I love the students at my school. I love the students at our church. I'll bend over backward to serve them and be kind to them. But that only goes so far. My kids, they came to us and they remain with us through suffering. Childbirth prematurely and in distress. And through a hard year-long adoption process with the marks of love that we were willing to endure because we love those babies and they're ours. When I see my babies, and yeah, I still call them my babies. And if you think you can whip me, try it. I'm going to call them my babies when they're 50. When I see my babies and I watch the way they walk, I watch the way they talk, the way they hug Jennifer, the way they hug me, the way they smile, and all their little nuances that's unique just to them kind of stirs my soul. Even when I'm angry with them for their failing to do what they're supposed to do, my soul stirs. Even when I discipline them and yell at them and take my belt to them, my soul stirs and I'm gracious even in discipline because I love them. I can't help it. They're mine. The Bible tells us we're adopted children of God and heirs of His as His children. We are full-blown children of God in Christ. As a result, we get the innumerable gifts of blessing that have been purchased for us by Christ in His suffering and they're poured out on us as a precious gift. Jesus bought every good thing you have and every bad thing He turns for good. Jesus bought that for you on the cross. And Paul says, grace be with you. Sometimes grace looks like abundance. Sometimes grace looks like support and discipline. Such as the Father can uphold me with one hand and discipline me with the other. Sometimes grace looks like keeping us in the faith when every principality and power is assaulting our trust in the Lord. But that grace is ours at the cost of Jesus suffering for us in order that we may receive that grace. And Paul tells Timothy, grace be with you. It's not like Paul's words trip some spiritual magical switch that causes God's goodness chain to be yanked and all of a sudden good things fall out of the heavens on Timothy and the Ephesian Christians. Paul often says these words to the recipients of his letters. Grace to you or grace and peace be with you. The Bible tells us that words convey life and death. Proverbs 18.21 Words are powerful things because they carry ideas and understanding. Ideas are powerful things because they carry implications. When Paul tells Timothy, grace be with you, it's a reminder that God's grace is lavishly and richly available to Him. And they are lavishly available to us. Paul doesn't tell Timothy, though, how he's to draw on that grace, does he? He stops. There's nothing else after that. Grace be with you. He's like, he, tell me how. You're sort of like, whoa, you stopped writing. 
Don't you have five like points of application to tell me how to go get that? No. That's just the Father's way in the kingdom. He does it all over the Bible. He tells you this grand and glorious thing and leaves you hanging. It's just Father's way. But you know what? He tells Jeremiah something important after everybody's favorite Bible verse. Everybody knows Jeremiah 29, 11, right? It's everybody's favorite Bible verse. But he gives some very important instruction in verse 12 through 14. I would say make this more what you memorize in verse 11. Verse 11 is really good. I'm not downing it. It's everybody's favorite for a reason. And verse 12 through 14 is pretty important too. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Isn't it easy how those words just slip through our ears? Like, okay, so what? You will pray and I will hear you. God hears when I pray? Okay, that's good news. You will seek me. I love how I love how he says you will seek me. He doesn't say you can seek me if you want to. You will seek me. Why? God's people seek him. If you don't seek him, you're not his people. It's that simple. You will seek me. God's people come after him. Those who aren't his don't come after him. It's not complicated. You will seek me. And I'll hide. And you got to seek me harder. No, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Whoa. You want to taste the innumerable graces of God purchased for you at the cross in Christ's suffering? Come after him with everything in your being. There you go. Come after him. But remember... We don't come after Him by seeking riches. We don't come after Him by being haughty. We don't come after Him by finding all of our joy aborting in this life. We don't come after Him by wandering away from the gospel to babble and miss. We come after Him by staying on true life. And that true life is found, we've already studied it, in Christ alone. It's not complicated. We're just broken. And we believe lies. And we go after those lies. And they end in death. And we wonder, what happened? And the Lord's going, I told you, don't go after that. And we're like, okay. Alright, and we back up and have to start over. Church, life is found in Christ. Colossians says it. In Him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And there, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You want to know how to taste the grace of God? Go after Jesus with everything in you. Avoid seeking the Turkish delight of things that fade. And come after Christ. It's like I'm out of time. And I popped down um, some really fun things. There's 11 of them that help us to seek after the Lord with all of our heart. I'm going to run through them very quickly. not going to expand upon them. Seek Jesus' kingdom and His righteousness first. Matthew 6, 33. That's a Bible memorization verse, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. You know, you sing it in Bible school. And it, isn't it easy when you're familiar with Bible verses, you just skip over the implications? Oh, yeah, seek first the kingdom of God. Then what do we do? We go seek everything other than the kingdom of God. Seek the kingdom. Yeast and dough. Treasure hidden in a field. Net cast into a sea. Go, go take Matthew 13 and don't come up for air until it starts making sense. He who has ears to hear, Jesus said, let him hear. Go seek the kingdom and his righteousness. If you hadn't got his righteousness down, don't stop. Keep seeking the kingdom and his righteousness. Two, ask him for eyes that see so we can see the treasure hidden in the field and comprehend how the yeast of the kingdom leavens the dough of created order. Ask for eyes that see. Recognizing the God of this age, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Pray that we don't have unbelieving eyes. Three, no father and thus know his good intentions in all things. 
four, be aware of Father's providence. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Genesis 50, 20. Jesus has never fumbled. Ever. Read Esther. You pay attention to Haman. He's an Agagite. You know why that's important? He's a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites, that Saul failed to slaughter earlier. Meaning the consequences of Saul's disobedience has now come upon the people of God. You think God dropped the ball there? Nope. Not at all. Matter of fact, the Lord's in charge of the story and we discover that God caused the king to not sleep that night so he could read the chronicles of the kingdom and be reminded of Mordecai who had saved his life earlier. And then he has Haman brought in and Haman thinks he's going to honor him but in fact he's asking for Mordecai and then Haman says, oh, this is what you should do to the person that you want to honor. And then Haman discovers the guy he wants to kill is the guy that the king wants to honor. And then Haman has to ride him through the streets honoring him. And then Haman ends up getting hung on his own gallows that he made for Mordecai. You think that's just happenstance? Negative, Ghost Rider. The pattern is full. God's ruling history. Be aware of his providence. Know that the Father's not left us without instruction. It's in the manual. Know that storms... Our opportunities to rest in the stern with Jesus and not fret in the bow with Peter. Sit still and quiet with Bible open and pen in hand, waiting for the Lord to speak, then record your time with the Father. Be in fellowship with the people of God. The Lord often sends a word through a faithful brother or sister. Nine, don't let your spiritual sight get crowded with myths and speculations and useless discussions. Take an inventory and purge your soul of false ideas and misguided ends. And you need the Holy Spirit help in that. And you need the church's help with that. You need fellowship help with that. You need the Bible to help you with that. Read and meditate on the kingdom of God. Read and meditate on the kingdom of God. And finally, worship. The flow of the Bible is that theology leads to doxology. The study of God and His Word leads to worship. Worship is our public and private communion with God in which believers by grace center their mind's attention and heart's affection on the Lord, humbly glorifying God in response to the revelation of His glory and His majesty. I invite you this morning in response to what He said, worship. Let's pray. Father, we ask now for help to worship. We pray that You have achieved and ask that You will now achieve in these moments great praise for Yourself. I pray that you would move and stir in the hearts of your people to cause us to make much of you. You have given us wise counsel. Your word is rich and full. And there are things that blow our mind, but Holy Spirit be our teacher and helper and counselor into truth and guide into truth. Lord, hear our prayer as we come after you, Lord marvelously, gloriously show yourself to us that we may see and savor and enjoy. Help us, your people, to center our minds, attention, and hearts, affection on you and humbly glorify you in response to what you have done for us, the revelation of your glory and majesty. And we pray, Father, that you would be glorified in all this in Jesus' name.